From Foreign Policy and the Brookings Institution, we bring you And Now the Hard Part. I'm Jonathan Tepperman. On each episode, we examine one vexing problem, trace its origin, and offer a way forward. For years, the Kremlin and the media it controls have waged a multifaceted information and disinformation campaign, both inside Russia and pointed at its perceived adversaries. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Based on uniform intelligence assessments, the Russians were responsible for hacking the DNC. President-elect Trump was briefed on the classified report today, but he concluded that the hacking of sensitive Democratic Party files had no effect on the election. If you take a look at the French elections, for example, again, an unclassified hearing, I'm not going to get into specifics, but we had become aware of Russian activity. We had talked to our French counterparts prior to the public announcement. Today, fighting back against Russian disinformation. Our guest is Elena Polyakova. She's Brookings Director of the Global Project on Democracy and Emerging Technology and resident Russia expert. So, Alina, I want to start by identifying the problem. We're talking about Russia's disinformation campaigns in Europe and the United States over the past few years, often around election campaigns. And the way I see it, and tell me if I'm wrong, um, these disinformation campaigns have managed, at the very least, to sow confusion in these countries. And in some cases, they've been really successful at undermining people's trust in democracy. I think that's exactly the right way to think about it. Disinformation is the intentional spread of false, misleading, inaccurate information. So the intent really matters there. So often you see misinformation. That can be a mistake made by a news agency that's then corrected. It can be your uncle or grandfather sending you conspiracy theories over an email news list. Um, That's not intentionally targeted to try to influence a society or public opinion or a certain narrative about key events. So when I use the term disinformation, it's really about this intentional spread of false information. Fake news, I think, has become such a loaded term uh, that I don't like to talk about it anymore because it's become a term for news that you don't like. It's fake right. news. Right. So disinformation is a very, very specific term really referring to this intentional spread of misinformation. And why has disinformation become such a favorite tool for Putin and for Russia? Is this uh, a form of asymmetric warfare, a way that a weaker adversary in today's Russia can punch above its weight effectively in, in the struggle with the U.S. and the West? That's exactly right. If we look at Russia um, as a state power today, it cannot compete with the United States, certainly not the U.S. and U.S. allies militarily, certainly not economically. Uh, they have a huge problem with uh, a brain drain of human capital. So it's ve- it is very much a country in decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a country that is weak in so many different ways, like Russia, will look for other opportunities to assert its influence. And information warfare is exactly one way of this kind of asymmetric influence operation. It's relatively low cost. Uh, it could be highly impactful if done the right way. And as a result, it's kind of the perfect weapon of a weak power. I get how easy it would be for someone unwittingly to read a post on Twitter or on Facebook that was created um, by a Russian bot or someone working for a troll farm and not realize what they're reading. But I've always wondered, why does anybody in the West watch RT or read Sputnik? 
Um, I'll give you an anecdote to answer that question. So a friend of mine who's a, a former journalist uh, was called for jury duty here in the District of Columbia. And uh, he's waiting in the waiting room. And as we all know, there's usually a television that's playing some news channel. Um, and he notices, he looks up and he sees they have RT on in the waiting room. RT's Maria Fanoshina reports from fragmenting Syrian rebel-held territories. And he goes up to somebody at the reception desk. And he says, you know, why do you have this on? And, you know, the woman at the reception desk tells him something along the lines of, well... We used to have Fox News on and people complained about it. Uh, So we put on MSNBC and other people complained about it. So we wanted something neutral. Wow. Try to find any which way to take a jab at both Donald Trump and Russia. And so that, I think, exactly explains how the polarization in our own society, which, of course, is not created by some foreign actor or some other state. It is in our own society, opens all of these opportunities and these vacuums for someone else to step in and fill that void. When you're trying to outline or measure the scale of the problem, are there any metrics that you use or ways that you determine just how effective all this Russian disinformation is being? That is, how do you judge whether it's working or not? We don't have the ability to say that. It's impossible to answer that question, which is why this is such an amorphous um, and ambiguous and vague problem to deal with. To my mind, uh, what matters the most is that your average person who doesn't engage in foreign policy issues and doesn't nerd out on this stuff like like I do and like some of my friends and colleagues do, can understand that when they look at a story, is it a manipulated story or is it factual? And it doesn't just go to Russian disinformation. Disinformation has now spread to all factors of our life, anti-vax campaigns, right? That are causing children to die in parts of this country. Her infant daughter died of a disease that is normally kept at bay with immunizations. This is real consequence. So here we can, can you say because a mother read a specific story on a Jenny McCarthy website that she decided not to vaccinate her children? Probably not, but it's the culmination of all of this. Mm -hmm. The point is that over time, as you have more and more of these kinds of misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories seeping into our mainstream media, seeping into our social consciousness, um, it does start to have, I think, the long-term effect of confusing people as to what is real, what is not, who to believe, who not to believe. Pizzagate, a fictitious online conspiracy theory. Pizzagate started on the Internet shortly before Election Day when right-wing sites that make up fake news spread rumors that Hillary Clinton was Okay, so now that we've identified the problem, let's talk about how we got here. It seems like Ukraine uh, around 2013 is a good place to start. These are the scenes that triggered the breakup of Ukraine. Scenes that have brought the world to the brink of a new Cold War. Unarmed protesters gunned down in the streets by the riot police who were retreating from Kiev's Maidan Square. So I think 2013... Uh, in Ukraine, the so-called Maidan revolution that took place in 2013-2014. Huge democratic protests against a corrupt government eventually ends in the president at the time, Viktor Yanukovych, running away to Russia. We really see 
the deployment of the full Russian disinformation machine, which includes Russian language media that is aimed at Russian speakers in the former Soviet space, and increasingly foreign language media, meaning English language media, so like RT and Sputnik, all of these outlets that are broadcast in the United States, they broadcast into Europe, all over the world. And then, of course, the digital disinformation campaigns uh, with trolls and bots and all of these other entities that now have become common terms um, in 2019. But certainly weren't common terminology in 2013, 2014. And at that time, I was doing some doctoral research in Ukraine. And what I started to notice was how the Russian narrative, which was false, because I was on the ground, I knew what was happening. The Russian narrative about what was happening in Ukraine. The Russian narrative was happening in Ukraine uh, was really infiltrating and infecting uh, Western media. Meaning you know, the Russian narrative became increasingly more fantastical over time. Uh, there were sort of stories about how what was happening in Ukraine at the time was a fascist coup. It was a CIA-inspired coup. Sometimes it was a Jewish coup. Sometimes it was a fascist Jewish mm. coup. You know, sometimes there were stories fabricated with actors you know, claiming that there were all these atrocities committed by the Ukrainian military that weren't true. And Ukrainian journalists had to learn to debunk all of these false stories. But what I thought was fascinating was how much a lot of Western reporters seemed to be picking up on this Russian narrative. This, to me, started to look much less like a set of separate operations and much more like an ecosystem of influence. And describe what are the sort of spectrum of bad consequences that disinformation is causing or leading to? So, of course, you know, obviously we've had a lot more experience with Russian disinformation since what happened in Ukraine. The U.S. elections, uh, I think most people are very well aware of the Russian influence operations You're talking about 2016? Exactly. The 2016 elections, mass Russian disinformation campaign targeting the U.S. electoral process. If we kind of take a bit of a look back at how the campaign was unfolding, uh, the intelligence community didn't really release any sort of information about what they were picking up until after the elections already took place. So it's really in January 2017, you know, that we get any sort of reports from the U.S. intelligence community as to what the Russian operations were. Today, the director of national intelligence took the unusual step of releasing an unclassified version of an investigation that details computer hacking, propaganda, and fake news articles. After that, we have very similar disinformation campaigns against France in 2017, the election of French President Emmanuel Macron. But not just around elections. We also have Russian disinformation campaigns around really critical events, like the attempted poisoning of a former Russian spy that happened in the UK, an individual by the name of Skripal. That Mr Skripal and his daughter were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia. And so since 2016 to 2018 congressional elections, there's much more awareness now around the desire to manipulate our electoral processes through the information space. But I think what's interesting to me now is to, to your question that you asked, you know, why does this matter, basically? You know, why should we care right. about a thousand Russian bots or uh, a fake story that comes out right. from RT or Right. Sputnik? What are they actually doing that makes a difference? Well, let's look at 2016. Can we really say that the, whatever the Russians did, the disinformation attacks, the cyber hacks of the DNC and other Clinton operatives and the leaking of that information... Did that really sway the outcome of the election? So far, I think that's the wrong question to be asking. One, we can't prove that, right? How are you going to prove that because a voter in Michigan 
let's say, saw a piece of what we know is Russian disinformation because it came from a troll factory in St. Petersburg and then decided to change their minds about who they're going to vote for. That's an impossible connection to make. So to my mind, the question we should be asking is how do these narratives by foreign actors and malicious foreign governments aim to actually undermine trust in the democratic process, a trust in our institutions, and trust between the people and their own representatives, meaning the institutions of democracy. Because at the end of the day, that's a soft spot in democratic societies. And we don't think about it very much. But what does democracy really rest on? It rests on individuals' belief that their institutions are free and fair and they represent the people's interests. As soon as you start to kind of chip away at that belief, and it's just a belief, right, democracy becomes much more difficult to sustain. And a thousand Russian bots may not matter, but it's a very slow drip. This is a sick system from the inside. And, you know, there's no country like our country, but we have a lot of sickness. Say a little bit more, please, about this connection between disinformation and the far right. Um, you know, it's become commonplace that it exists, but it's not clear why or exactly it developed. The, the European and, and American um, nationalist movements don't necessarily seem like natural allies for Russia. So why and how did that develop in particular? Yeah, what was interesting is that if we look at sort of Russian influence operations beyond just the information warfare space that we've been discussing, um, there are other tools of influence that the Russian government has developed and deployed against different countries. Um, so in the U.S., we have been the target primarily of the information campaigns. In countries that are closer to Russia geographically, like Ukraine, Georgia, former Soviet republics, they also have other levers of influence, like energy. Russia hiked the gas price for Ukraine by 80%. Kiev cried foul, calling it political payback after... They've also tried to build alliances with any fringe political party. And this is where this uh, far-right connection comes in. Marie Le Pen has said that if elected, she would work to find the quickest way possible to lift EU sanctions against Russia. And why are the Russians interested in building these connections? Well, because most of these far-right parties are very anti-EU. They're anti-establishment. They want to reinforce some sort of borders uh, within the European Union. And so they're, they're disruptors. And, of course, that serves the Russian interest to disrupt countries that the Russian government sees as adversarial, so the West. Are there links to, to far-left parties as well that are equally There have been, yes. Uh-huh. So the Soviet Union, for example, was very involved in funding communist parties. And then the Russian government, following the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, was also tangentially involved in building relationships with these uh, communist successor parties. Uh, but the reality is that most of these parties have disappeared by now. And so from the Russian perspective, it was, you know, you place your chips on a couple of different disruptive actors. Mm-hmm. And certainly the bet on the far right has paid off much more than the bet on the far left. But it seems like uh, what you're saying is that the, the point um, of these efforts is not to empower the far right because the Russians actually care about the far right. It's to use them as a wedge, as a tool to achieve this broader aim, which is not about a specific ideology or promoting a specific ideology or political faction, but just promoting chaos in general. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Um, I've talked about this um, as a concert of chaos strategy, where there are a lot of moving parts, um, a lot of proxy actors, you know, various oligarchs involved in funding anti-NATO protests 
protests in the Czech Republic, for example. in funding a troll farm and then uh, influences the U.S. elections and other elections elsewhere. Um, and all of these different proxy groups are not necessarily fully controlled by Mr. Putin or the Kremlin. But in this chaos and all of these different pieces, all these actors acting together towards a common strategy, which is disruption, which is chaos, which is undermining the stability of democratic regimes. But what I find really interesting is that a lot of the support coming from the Russian government or its proxies towards these far-right groups is not financial. It's support in providing the capabilities and capacities to influence the information environment. So if you look at across-the-board far-right parties in Europe, maybe the alternative for Germany, uh, which is a far-right group um, in the German parliament, during the last German elections, uh, they get, got a lot of airtime on RT. Well, Angela Merkel may have come out on top, but this is the party that's doing a pretty good job of reigning on her parade. They didn't get a lot of airtime on any mainstream German media. Mm. So if you look at their digital presence, the AFD has far more supporters and far more followers than the mainstream center-right party of the German chancellor, the CDU. So you see this disparity between how powerful these parties appear in the information space versus how, how popular they actually are in reality. And all of that has been, I think, part of the Russian toolkit to promote these kinds of movements. So as you've noted elsewhere, disinformation is hardly new for Russia. But there's been a sort of a flip, by which I mean that during the Cold War, it was Soviet citizens that were subjected to disinformation from the government. Today, it's Western citizens that are being subjected to Russian disinformation. But is it the tool a familiar one and, and such a comfortable one for the Russian government because Russia's governments in different forms have been using it in different ways for so long? Well, I, well, I would say to that is that certainly the Soviet Union um, had a very well-developed propaganda arm that its intelligence agency, the KGB, deployed globally. The department that specializes in planting false stories and forged documents. And you know, in Russia today, there is basically no independent free media anymore either. There's still a little bit, but these news outlets are really not national. They've been suppressed, repressed, harassed in various ways. So we have a very similar closed information system in Russia. Not as bad because of the internet, obviously, but getting close to the Soviet period as well. And throughout Soviet and now Russian history, the state has used its own citizens as the first testing ground for all of these operations. So just give you one example. Maybe some listeners are familiar with the troll factory I mentioned a couple of times. This was the so-called Internet Research Agency uh, that was identified as running the disinformation against the 2016 U.S. elections. And what we know from uh, some of the indictments from the special counsel investigation and other independent Russian reporting on this is this troll farm actually had about eight to nine hundred employees. It's a pretty large amount. Only 10 percent of those were devoted to the U.S. operation, to the English language operation. So what that tells you is that 90 percent of trolls employed by this troll farm were actually focusing on Russian language. And you say employed. Who were the real employers? So the real employer was an individual named Evgeny Prigozhin, who is a agent of the Kremlin, who's very close to Mr. Putin, 
often referred to as Putin's chef because he has very lucrative government contracts to provide uh, food and catering to the Russian Ministry of Defense and other governmental agencies. And he acts as a sort of shadow broker or a gray cardinal for special projects. Putin's so-called chef also handles the Kremlin's under-the-table operations, including a disinformation factory. Well, that suggests that at least some effort is being made by Putin to keep these things at arm's length. And why is that? Does Putin want to maintain some plausible deniability where these efforts are concerned? That's exactly right. Uh, So since the 2016 allegations against the Russian government and their activities in sowing disinformation in the United States and elsewhere in Europe, the official line of the Russian government and Mr. Putin has been to deny, deny, deny. Ronald Reagan once debating about taxes and uh, addressing the Americans said, watch my lips. He said, no, watch my lips. And so we've seen over time that the Russian state has developed sort of a proxy warfare, uh, whether that comes to information warfare, whether that comes to military warfare as well. They really function through these proxy actors as a way to be able to shirk off any allegations or responsibility and to maintain, as you say, plausible deniability. Do you think Trump has made the problem worse by treating it as a joke in his public meetings with Putin? I do think that if we had leadership on this issue in the United States, it would be in a very different space in terms of being able to respond and build resilience to these kinds of operations in the future. Unfortunately, now, uh, I think the U.S. is falling very much behind, especially some of our European allies, in really understanding the nature of the threat. And you know what was striking too, John? They were sharing a joke. The president laughed it off and smiled, and Vladimir Putin was smiling there with him. So, so the man who U.S. intelligence is... Okay, Alina, um, we've talked about the problem and traced how we got here, but now comes the hard part. So when you think about all of this, um, when you talk to government officials, when you testify on the Hill, what kind of solutions do you propose? How would you fix this? So what we've seen since 2016 is that that moment was a wake-up call to a lot of policymakers. I think certainly in the U.S. government, if not the president himself, but certainly within the U.S. government and certainly among European countries, especially for the EU. So what's been happening in Europe since then is that the European Union, through the European Commission, has at least started to frame a common set of concepts, terminologies, ideas as to what the problem is, so defining the problem, and then outlining a series of potential solutions for trying to get ahead of it. Uh, So the EU has come up with a document they call the Code of Practice, and they've actually gotten social media companies to sign up to it. It's voluntary, but at least there's some accountability in terms of reporting to the EU government. And Um, what kind of things does this involve? So uh, the code of practice basically asks social media companies to provide reporting on a regular basis as to what they're doing to address the spread of inaccurate false information on their platforms. There have been uh, some regulatory laws that have been passed. One is called the GDPR. All of us are probably only aware of it because every time you go on a website now, you have to give your permission for your data to be used. This is the big European privacy protection Exactly, exactly. Online privacy. It tightens Europe's already strict laws about what companies can do with people's data. 
It gives you more control over how your data is collected and used. and forces. So it's not enough, but certainly in terms of coordinating, sharing information, setting up within governments as some sort of task force to coordinate governmental efforts. Most European countries have started to do this. Um, which allies do you have in mind? Is there a country or two that has done particularly well in fighting back against disinformation? I've read at times that Sweden did a very good job in the recent election. Others yeah. have praised the UK. Who's your pick and why? Yeah, I think Sweden is a fantastic example. You know, they basically raised awareness around this issue. They sent uh, information to all the households in Sweden um, ahead of their own uh, national elections in the fall, explaining to them what is this information? What do you do if you think you're picking up intentionally falsified stories? Who should you contact? Uh, they implemented or tried to implement a more digital literacy courses um, in secondary schools. Um, they, there's also an agency um, that they have reestablished on uh, psychological defense that owns this issue um, and names and shames Russia. Well, whose responsibility is this ultimately? I mean, you, I can think of all sorts of different actors that need to be part of the solution, and, and maybe that's what the answer is. Governments have a role, but they're not the only ones. A lot of people blame the media. Um, people also say it's tech companies that should be taking the lead. So it has to be this multi-stakeholder, you know, forgive the cliche, whole of society approach. And the problem that we're facing is that authoritarian states like Russia or China can do all of these operations top down. I think the one positive consequence of the Russian activities in 2016 in the United mm -hmm. States um, has been that the awareness level has increased so much. Um, you don't have to explain to people as much why this matters anymore. But at the same time, and really, really at the beginning of a sort of trial and error of trying new policies from governments in Europe, new uh, tech fixes from the social media companies, and all kinds of various projects being started in the civil society space. But we're not quite there yet in having a whole-of-society approach. Well, let's say we were able to amend the U.S. Constitution to allow for a Ukrainian-born um, think tank fellow to become president of the United States, and then we got you elected. What would your plan be, or what would the key elements of your plan be for fighting back? You know, I think, one, I would look at what we did during the Cold War to some extent. Um, and at that time, the U.S. government, at a very high level, called out these kinds of actions against the so United naming States. naming and shaming. Right? Naming and shaming. The Soviet Union is paying around $2 billion a year for their propaganda, employing about 500,000 people. You know, I would assign a high-level undersecretary position to own this problem across the government. I work closely with allies and try to learn from what they've done. And then I think the next step is, has to be more offensive. You have to send the message to those that try to undermine our democracies that there will be consequences for their actions. So using the sanctions tool, for example, is one option. But I think there are more creative, sort of non-symmetric ways of doing this, meaning just because an authoritarian state launches a disinformation campaign against us, doesn't mean we need to launch a disinformation campaign against them. But you're saying there are other forms of deterrence that could work? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing that we have completely disinvested in the United States since the end of the Cold War is in our ability to project a message about why democracy is a good thing. You know, there's a lot of skepticism around the world, not just among Russian citizens, but 
among people living in sort of the new democracies of Central Eastern Europe about the value of democracy. The U.S. used to be that beacon. We need a political leader who's able to explain to the American people why this matters, why they should care, and what we're going to do about it. I think that's a great note to end on. Alina, thank you so much for coming in to talk to us. Thank you, Jonathan. My pleasure. Many thanks to our guest today, Alina Polyakova. She's Brookings Director of the Global Project on Democracy and Emerging Technology. Thanks for listening to And Now the Hard Part. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, FP's Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast is a collaboration between FP and the Brookings Institution. Our production staff includes Dan Efron, Rob Sachs, Maya Gandhi, Camilo Ramirez, Anna Newby, and Emily Horn. Next week on the podcast, how to reset the U.S. relationship with China. Ryan Haas, one of the China experts at Brookings, comes to our studio to talk tariffs, trade, and diplomacy with China. You know, we have inherent advantages against China. If the U.S.-China relationship was a foot race, we'd be a mile ahead of them right now. That's next week on our show.